Tonight's talk is titled, Finding Our Steady and Graceful Heart. So I want to start with some dharma from a cartoon that um, I watched with my nieces when I was visiting them in February. It's a dharma cartoon. It wasn't planned to be one, but I discovered that it was one. So the the setup is that there is a math teacher, and she's giving. Um, this is in honor of uh, Jesse. <laughs> she's giving a math problem to these two girls, well, her whole class. But the story follows these two girls. So the math problem is a train traveling at thirty miles per hour leaves the station at 2.30 p.m. Now it's 5 o'clock. Why is the train? (laughs) 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 So these girls are very upset. (laughs) They're kind of like totally freaked out by this math problem. And that they can't, you know, figure it out. Like, why is the train? (laughs) And um, (laughs) they get so upset that they kidnap their math teacher and (laughs) take her to some people, some thugs or something that will, (laughs) like, force the answer out of her. And um, so the the teacher just says it was a typo. It was supposed to be, where is the train? Um, I just adored this cartoon. Um, And what what I really liked was how angry they were at the um, unpredictability of the question. They wanted a predictable question. The predictable one, of course, is, where is the train? Um, And like how far they would go to kind of try to get order back in their universe. And um, I think we all do that quite a bit. We love predictability. We want things to be expected. And um, we do everything we can to try to make them that way. Uh, There's another story I want to share with you. It's one of my favorite um, John Cage stories. John Cage, the avant-garde composer. And uh, this is him speaking a number of years after the the um, concert. He says, I gave a performance of my piece called Empty Words Part 4 for the students of Chogyam Trungpa at Renoropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. The piece goes on for two and a half hours and contains long silences of four or five minutes duration. And then out of that silence, I just say a few letters of the alphabet following a score which was written through chance operations from the journal of Henry David Thoreau. Meanwhile, there are these very faint images of Thoreau's drawings being projected on a screen behind me, but they are are very dim and hardly change at all, perhaps once every 20 minutes. I thought it was an ideal piece for a Buddhist audience, but they became absolutely furious. and (laughs) I hear it was a near riot. Um, They were throwing things at him. (laughs) He said they yelled at me and tried to get me to stop the performance. 
The next morning, I had a meeting with Choi Gram Trungpa, and he asked me to join the faculty at Naropa. (laughs) So here we are in this um, world of great change, unpredictability, uncertainty, and sometimes it seems like what we most crave is predictability and certainty. So what do we do? What do we do with this world and that um, inherent contradiction? And how do we find steadiness and grace in this kind of world? So there's a couple of ways that that we work with it. You could say one way is um, through exclusivity and the other is through inclusivity or through excluding nothing. And so one way that we um, steady the heart in this world of great change is through excluding a lot and um, finding one place for the attention to land. So the anchor has a, can have a certain amount of exclusivity and concentration practices, for example, Michelle was talking about this the other night, have, um, they're, they're, they're trying to find steadiness in this world through um, exclusivity, through keeping everything at bay and just having one place where our attention lands. And that kind of concentration can be um, somewhat supportive for us, right? Because it gives us a kind of a, a, a home base or a way to kind of start to steady the mind and heart in this um, wild, crazy world. So we do have that kind of um, steadying through a through concentration or through settling on one object. But the the challenge with this kind of practice, our practice exclusively focused that way, is that it doesn't solve our predicament. It doesn't um, solve our um, need to find a way to um, be gracefully or be with grace in this world of change. It's like a temporary solution. It works while we're, while we're doing it, but, but it doesn't get to the root of the matter. And Vipassana practice, this is, it's, it's about getting to the root of the matter to really study our heart's response to this changing world and to see where our hearts are rigid or demanding um, of circumstances where we, where we suffer, where we get um, tangled in our, uh, you could say, navigation of this world of change. And then our practice is exploring how can we um, soften the rigidity, um, release the contraction of heart, mind, and body-related, and connect with reality as it is with some sense of grace or poise. And the supremely graceful heart, that's the one that can connect with reality fully. And, we, and it can connect with reality fully because it has no demands, it has no requirements on the moment. Able to be with things as they are. So we're on this journey discovering for ourselves the, the uh, graceful heart. 
but we don't uh, we don't um, we don't go there easily. I would say we kind of go there kicking and screaming <laughs> with the resistance that Michelle was talking about last night. And I, and there's a story from Joseph Goldstein's book that describes, I would say, this process of resistance and um, surrender to to the way things are. I feel like it kind of sums up our whole path. In India, I was living in a little hut about six feet by seven feet. It had a canvas flap instead of a door. I was sitting on my bed meditating, and a cat wandered in and plopped down on my lap. I took the cat and tossed it out the door. (laughs) Ten seconds later, it was back on my lap. We got into a sort of dance, this cat and I. I tossed it out because I was trying to meditate to get enlightened. But the cat kept returning. I was getting more and more irritated, more and more annoyed with the persistence of the cat. Finally, after about a half hour of this coming in and tossing out, I had to surrender. There was nothing else to do. There was no way to block the door. I sat there. The cat came back in, and it got on my lap. But I did not do anything. I just let go. Thirty seconds later, the cat got up and walked out. (laughs) I feel like that sums up the whole spiritual path, right? It's like we resist, we resist, we resist. Finally, we're like, okay, that's not working. We kind of surrender, (laughs) and then things uh, open up. So when we see struggle in our practice, we often feel like we're doing it wrong. But actually it's a sign that we're doing it right because we're seeing um, how our hearts, you could say, argue with reality. And we're working it out. And the only way to work it out is to, is to get in there <laughs> and to see what happens and to do it mindfully. You could say to suffer mindfully. We want to suffer with mindfulness because then we can learn. This quality of gracefulness in the world of change could also be called equanimity. So equanimity is um, the mind and heart that can uh, flow with the changing pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences of life without reactivity, without grasping, without aversion. So it's a heart and mind that's deeply at peace with the way things are the heart and mind that's um, released from, from our own prison of grasping and aversion. And this uh, heart and mind is um, okay with the unknown. It has that quality of soft readiness that Michelle was talking about with mindfulness. And it can delight, you could say, in the in the display of life because it doesn't need life to meet its expectations. It doesn't need life to be in any particular form. It can meet it as it is. (laughs) 
And so what we start to see in our own practice is that our insistence that life be the way we want it to be creates tangle, creates stress. And through that engagement with that process, we discover um, an increasing poise, you could say, our gracefulness, our lively engagement with unfolding conditions. And we learn that through what challenges us. So our challenges are our teachers. All of life is our teacher. I read in a book um, that Christina Feldman wrote, it was about a friend of hers, student, who has a sign. He lives on a busy street in Manhattan, and he has a sign on the inside of the door going out to the street, and the sign says, Meditation Hall. (laughs) And it's pointing towards that, like everything in life can be our teacher. Little things, big things. We can start with the little things um, so we can uh, learn, and then when the big things happen, we, we, we have um, some skill in, in this kind of gracefulness developed. A couple of weeks ago, I was teaching in Ohio, and um, I liked to take a walk in the afternoon. I, would work, I gave my Dharma talks in the afternoon, so I'd work on them, go for a walk, finish them up, and then give the talk. So I had about an hour to walk, and um, there was a place I liked walking down by the river. And lots of birds, they seemed to, lots of birds seemed to go through Ohio about this time of the year. So lovely bird song and and a beautiful river. So I was really looking forward to my um, pleasant walk by the river. So I get down to the river, and um, unfortunately, there's a um, shooting range not far <laughs> down the river. So um, what I got was gunshots, right? And um, so I was really, I was kind of intrigued by this um, bird song versus gunshots, and um, what I was going to do about that. I was like, I, you know, I, I was like curious. Like I have my hour to walk here, so how am I going to? how am I going to have some gracefulness with this situation? Or or the alternative was to suffer, which I wasn't in the mood to do. (laughs) But, you know, the alternative would usually, could easily be aversion, right? Like, I hate the gunshots. I want them to go away. Um, But I really did not want to spend my hour like that. Um, So I was highly motivated to kind of watch my mind and see what it was going to do. And I was aware that, like, if I was just going to focus on the gunshots, like, that was going to be my whole world. Like, my whole world was going to narrow to gunshots, right, to the sound of gunshots, which for me is unpleasant, but was probably pleasant to the person doing it. Um, So I just was thinking, like, well, how can I accommodate this, right? So I, I made my mind, like, really big. I made my mind big as I could make it. And, and it was like the sound of the, gunshoot, the gunshots went through my mind, but they didn't hit anything. They didn't hit any resistance. And it's almost like I could see the, the sound go through my mind, but there, there was no um, um, a resistance to it, so it just went through. And it was just this dance of like bird song, gunshot. When the, when the gunshot would first hit, there was a slight flinch, because I think that's just the deep kind of conditioning of humans when you hear a loud noise. 
but but there was no more residue than that. So that was like my experiment in, in equanimity with the way things were, with the way life was, with the change of life. And at that point, you know, other days I might not have had quite as much space. And then perhaps the equanimity would be all right, would be being okay with the fact that aversion is present. This is kind of the great thing about equanimity. It can keep getting bigger. It can keep including whatever is happening, not what we think should be happening. So we think, oh, well, then I should be equanimous. I should not have any trouble whatsoever with the gunshot sound. Well, that's a setup. <laughs> to me, the deepest equanimity is okay with the fact that there's aversion to the gunshots. Can we be with that? Can that be okay? So you could say that one of the main ways we develop equanimity is um, well, first of all, when it's there, we notice it. That's one way we develop it. We can um, learn to kind of acclimate to the taste of it. A little bit like Bob was describing this morning when he rested in the in the what the um, arising experiences rather than went out with them, you could sense that there was a greater um, equanimity in the mind and heart. So we can taste that, and we can um, get used to the taste of it. And that's one way that we can um, support the development of it. But what about when it's not present? What do we do then? So when it's not present, it's not like we're meant to kind of crush our hearts and minds into some kind of pseudo-equanimity. It's not like we're meant to, to kind of clamp down on them and tell them to be equanimous like we think they should be or to, you know, to, to give, them, um, give our heart and mind a spiritual lecture in what's correct. But rather to attend to what is true in the moment to attend to it with mindfulness, with compassion. So to attend to the reactivity then that is present, the aversion or the grasping. So we do this uh, deep exploration into the nature of wanting, grasping, clinging, holding on, however you want to, whichever word you want to use. And this uh, deep exploration into the nature of aversion and pushing away and hating and um, not wanting. And so this morning we were doing um, a little bit of that exploration in the, in the question and answer. So when, um, what we start to see is that when there is a pleasant object, uh, that often, without mindfulness, or even with mindfulness, but it, it, we get seduced by the pleasantness, and then we want more, right? So what we do with this exploration is we take our attention away from the pleasant object and we turn it towards the wanting itself. We want to understand the nature of wanting. We get entranced with the pleasant object, but we're actually turning back towards the wanting. And how do we feel it? How do we experience it? So it was described this morning as a contraction in the heart. So we um, 
we also see the, the, the kind of slick promises of grasping. That, that, that grasping promises us happiness. It promises that if we get what we want, we will be happy. If we can hold on to what we'll, we want, we'll be happy. We have to see if that's actually true. So this morning there was a realization that perhaps a cheeseburger wasn't going to actually do it. It, The cheeseburger looked promising, but perhaps it wasn't going to actually do it. I remember um, a number of my early retreats, I would look forward to lunch all day, all morning, right? It would be a big part of the morning, be like, oh, at least there's lunch. And... And, you know, I'd look forward to the experience of eating and the distraction of it and the taste and all. And um, like every day, so, so wanting, right, and kind of grasping for lunch, every day I would be sitting there eating and then somewhere around the middle of lunch I would get this sinking feeling. <laughs> I would be like, it's going to end. <laughs> and it hasn't done it. You know, it didn't. It's just a sense experience, pleasant sense experience, rising, passing away, and ending. And there would be this great sense of disappointment. And the next day I would do the same thing over again. (laughs) Because there's this deep, you know, like grasping, such a deep conditioning. It's so deep, right? So I do it over and over again and, and get disappointed and get disappointed. That's good practice. Like to really see that it doesn't deliver. Because it starts, it takes a while, but it starts to decondition the grasping. We start to let go and we see that it doesn't deliver what we thought it would. Charlotte Joko Beck says, practice has to be a process of endless disappointment. We have to see that what we want and demand and even get eventually disappoints us. And then Trungpa Rinpoche said, disappointment is a good sign of basic intelligence. (laughs) (laughs) And this isn't meant to be like a huge bummer or something. (laughs) It's actually meant to free the heart and mind, to free the heart and mind of the prison of that contraction of wanting that we were talking about. A number of years ago when I was going to talk on some, well, we. We basically were always talking about the same thing, but I was going to talk about clinging or non-clinging, and I had a um, an assistant with me, and I was talking with her about my talk that evening. We were sitting having dinner, and she says, "I like clinging. It makes me feel better, kind of." I thought there was so much wisdom in that. Like, I like clinging. We have to admit that we kind of like it because it gives us some kind of illusion of control or hope. Like, hope that there is something out there that's going to do it for us. But then she added the kind of... <laughs> that, that was the wisdom piece, right? Like, huh. 
What we get is some kind of hope that we're going to find the thing that's going to do it. But but what we also get is the um, imprisoned heart. Hmm. What about the trade-off? Of course, our culture tells us that wanting is a very good thing, and so we get we get that conditioning reaffirmed all the time. I saw, I love to see like different um, ways this is expressed in advertising. For example, at one time, uh, Honda had the, the tagline, something new to crave, crave.honda.org. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then there was a fast food company, I won't tell you which one. Um, their tagline for a certain new product was the simple joy of obsession. <laughs> And we're really, we're really like advertising and, and, and um, the current kind of capitalistic thinking, it's really meant to encourage and to feed off of this deep conditioning that that desire will, will satisfy and that we just haven't yet figured out what it is. Or that, that we can get rid of all unpleasantness. So that's the other side of aversion. Like we... We can get rid of all unpleasantness and we can just have a pleasant world. A number of years ago I saw an advertisement on TV and it was, um, this woman had a headache and, uh, and she says to us, how much tolerance do I have for pain? Zero tolerance. <laughs> just say no to pain. <laughs> I was like, wow, I'm sorry for you. (laughs) You know, and it was some kind of ad for aspirin, which, um, great, take an aspirin. There's nothing wrong with that. But if we have zero tolerance for pain, it's going to be a hard life. The Buddha talked about what are known as the eight worldly conditions. Or recently I read somebody called it the eight confining concerns, which I liked. So the eight worldly conditions, um, or the um, eight mundane vicissitudes of life. So what we have in this life is we have pleasure and pain gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. So we have the the pleasant side and the unpleasant side, right? We want the pleasure, we don't want the pain. We want the gain, we don't want the loss. We want the praise, we don't want the blame. We want the fame, we don't want the disrepute. And when you think about how much of our energy goes into assuring that we get only the pleasant side of these equations and not the unpleasant side, an amazing amount of energy goes into that. And yet, this human life, we're going to experience both sides. That's the truth of change. That's the truth. We're going to have both pleasure and pain. We're going to have gain and loss. We're going to have praise and blame. We're going to have fame and disrepute. 
but the eight confining concerns, that way of describing it, confining the mind that, um, it confines the mind to put too much energy into just trying to get one half of the equation. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with trying to lead a decent life and doing what's helpful for your life. And yet, if our strategy for happiness is this basic plan here, we're going to be restless, always seeking. So we get um, really nitty-gritty down into the trenches with grasping and aversion when it arises in our practice. And we um, explore the nature in body, heart, mind. Maybe see these hidden beliefs about what they promise for us. And then we start to be able um, to be able to see through them. You could say that grasping and aversion become less opaque and more transparent. Somebody I know described it like if you have a curtain and it's pretty opaque, you can't really see through it, and you poke a hole in it, not a big difference, another hole, not a big difference, like with a pin. But if you keep poking pinholes in, eventually you start to be able to see through that curtain. And you could say like these moments of mindfulness are like poking holes into our experience of grasping and aversion so that they become more transparent, not quite so opaque, and we can start to see through. And they, they start their power over us, the power to, um, you could say, hijack or convince us or get seduced by them starts to um, weaken. And there starts to be actually more choice about whether we go there or not. Not control, but when we, but or what you could say when we do go there, we start to have more choice about how we respond. That's a better way of putting it. Last night I was, or yesterday afternoon, or evening before the talk, I was having to work with my email because my server unexpectedly went out of business and um, did not inform us. So I have to change like my email address and uh, it was quite complicated trying to figure out how I was going to do this. And so I'm having this experience where I'm on the phone with somebody who's helping me and I notice, oh, aversion. I did not want to be doing this. But then I had this moment, it was like, well, do I really need to feel aversion here? It's like, do I want to be having this experience? I was like, no, this is not the experience I want to be having, the aversion. <laughs> the other, I'm like, this is what I'm doing right now. This is the way it is right now. And just that seeing the aversion, um, it dropped away. And it was like, it was okay. This is what I'm doing right now. This is what I have to work with. So it's that, it's the mindfulness gives us some, Um, starts to give us some choice with how we relate to this reactivity. Not all the time. Like It's not like you can command it, right? So sometimes with things that are much more difficult, much more challenging, 
you could say that mind, uh, that equanimity is a process, much more of a process. So with um, challenges such as uh, perhaps the loss of a loved one, you know, big changes, an unwanted health diagnosis, a political change that goes against your deepest values, the loss of a of a, an important relationship. So these kinds of the loss of a job, right? Are these kinds of big um, changes that hit us perhaps unexpectedly? Perhaps equanimity is the willingness to go through the process or the willingness to accompany the heart in its journey, um, its journey towards understanding or its journey towards uh, absorbing the new reality. So sometimes in this case, It, it's like it takes a willingness to be human, <laughs> right? A willingness to um, allow the heart the time and space accompany the heart on the journey that it, that it must take. And so sometimes this journey starts out with disbelief, right? then there may be um, anger, grief, disappointment, heartbreak, that full journey of letting go, you could say, or letting be, or accommodating to reality, or um, letting go of our argument with reality. I remember a number of years ago I was part of an organization that because of certain um, politics, maybe you want to say, or certain kind of complications, uh, it felt like the thing I needed to do was to resign from my position in order to let people work things out without my influence. And um, this organization felt like a family to me, and I so didn't want to do that. And... um, but but it just seemed like the only way out of a very complex situation. So I did it. I resigned. And I thought I was kind of equanimous with it. And then I started to notice that there were little, like, anger was kind of slipping out in little ways, which is a good, great sign that we're not equanimous. <laughs> it's kind of like when you see the anger kind of sneak out. It's like, huh, what's going on here? So I really then started to, to, to allow my heart to have the experience that it was having. And it, and it was over a number of months. It took me um, some time to... And there was, there was anger, and there was... Um, disappointment and grief and loss and just accompanying the heart with mindfulness. So there's a difference between like doing that mindfully and doing it not mindfully. (laughs) Not mindfully we feed the stories, right? And then we further entrench the suffering. But with mindfulness of coming back to feeling viscerally in the heart and to bringing kind of the, the, the emotion home, um, 
It does, uh, it, it takes its journey, it travels, the heart travels. And so then finally I remember one day I was sitting, thinking about it or something, and, and, and the thought came to my mind, did I think it wouldn't change? And, and, and that was like the, the, the moment that my mind was freed from, the, from the, um, the attachment, the holding on to that. It's like, did I think it wouldn't change? And then a year later, they worked everything out. I went back to the organization, and uh, I'm still there uh, today. So, um, yeah, it's like letting the heart have its journey and accompanying it. And that question, did I think it wouldn't change? I often find that, that, that when I go through a process with something that's difficult to accept, at some point that question occurs and it and it's usually when when i'm close to letting go of my argument against the way things are or um christina feldman calls it arguing with the unarguable that we argue with the unarguable the unarguable is the way things are so we're learn we're learning to let go of our argument with the way things are And yet, and yet we're allowing ourselves, right, to be human. There's um, this um, Japanese poet, Ryokan, many of you know him, a hermit poet from a couple centuries ago. I love this little short poem that kind of embraces a humanity in this journey through change. He says... Even though I knew the world is impermanent, not a moment passes when my sleeves are dry. So much um, humility and um, humanity in that short poem. Even though I knew the world is impermanent, not a moment passes when my sleeves are dry. It sounds like he's letting his heart have its journey through this world of change. So feeling tone is one place that we can really explore also equanimity. So as you all know, feeling tone is the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, um, you could say initial hit of a sense impression or sense experience. So we have these um, moments, this, this only six things that are happening, right, in this world, the, the hearing, tasting, seeing, smelling, uh, sensing in the body, and um, cognizing in the mind. So when there's a moment of sense experience, there is a corresponding feeling tone. So there's a pleasantness, unpleasantness, or 
neither pleasant nor unpleasantness or neutrality of that moment. Without mindfulness, as most of you know, there's a, um, a tendency with pleasantness to grasp, with unpleasantness to push away, and with neutrality to space out. With mindfulness, there's um, the chance that that automatic conditioning doesn't have, have to happen. So usually for most of us and for um, untrained worldlings, as the Buddha called, called them, <laughs> when there's um, pleasant, the grasping is, is, is right there. There's no... They're married for life. Like, there's no separation, right? It's a pleasant experience grasping right together. With mindfulness, we can start to see that there can be pleasantness, but there doesn't necessarily have to be grasping. And so we can explore this ourselves. So we have a pleasant experience, a pleasant experience happening. Let's say there's a pleasant sound bird song perhaps so there's a pleasant sound we can notice you could say we can notice three things happening so there's the vibration the hearing the 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 bare hearing at the ear door there's the pleasantness assuming in this case it's pleasant and then there's the mind that that wants to more of it wants it to last wants to hold on grasp right we can move through the three we can explore like the links between them. So we can um, explore pleasant. So we can see, for example, can we just land with the pure hearing? No grasping. Or can we just land with pleasantness? No grasping. Or does it go to grasping? Can we land with grasping? Can we explore that? So we can explore all those links and start to see how that conditioning happens and where there might be space around that conditioning. Unpleasantness. I had one of my deepest insights with a lawnmower sound here at IMS, so don't, don't give up on those lawnmower sounds. <laughs> so I was sitting here in the hall, and, and, and the, uh, I was having a very nice sitting, and then the lawnmower started, and... Um, so there was this, the hearing of the lawnmower, very unpleasant to me, and um, lots of aversion. You know, why are they mowing during the sitting period? That's very unkind of them or inconsiderate. I was having a good sitting. Now I'm not having a good sitting and, and lots of aversion. So I got really interested. And I was like, hearing the sound, unpleasant, And then this understanding that all of that tangle in my mind around not wanting it and all the judgment was only because it was unpleasant. It was like, oh, unpleasant. And it stopped with unpleasant. It could just stop there. And so I got the understanding that aversion and unpleasantness, unpleasantness and aversion do not have to necessarily be together. It can be unpleasant, end of story. Pleasant, end of story. Pleasant we enjoy, 
Don't add that in. Unpleasant. Don't add that in. Let it stay. Even today, perhaps, was an opportunity to explore pleasantness and grasping. So, beautiful day, right? The weather hasn't, hasn't been stellar for the last few. <laughs> I mean, I like any weather, but still, you know, the, today was a nice day, right? It's sunny, warm, and so perhaps you were outside and you're enjoying the sun or the warmth. Pleasant, right? And then there's just like this, I got to grok this fully. I got to get this fully, right? There's like this tension enters. Like I really got to enjoy this, right? Oh, so it's pleasant and grasping's happening. Can it be pleasant, enjoyable? End of story? No. We check it out. And it's not like you can force it. It's but it's like you just we explore. And through that exploration, some room can open up for that automatic conditioning not to follow. Winnie the Pooh describes this wisdom of equanimity. Winnie the Pooh, for those of you who don't know, is a a child's um, character in a whole series of books. So, he, so he's a bear. And he has a friend named Piglet, who's a little pig. What day is it? asked Winnie the Pooh. It's today, squeaked Piglet. My favorite day, said Pooh. I told this story um, at the retreat in Ohio, and uh, one of the retreatants left me this note. Your Winnie the Pooh story reminded me of what my daughter said when she was three or four years old. I gave her a coin when we were leaving the store to put in the small gumball machine. I told her to turn the knob and then asked her what color she wanted. Her reply, I want the color I get. So we can we can see that this heart and mind of um, flex of, of equanimity has this flexibility. Flexibility with um, just connecting with things as they are. And I would say that so so this this equanimity and um, the uh, ending the tangle of argument with the way things are the ending the argument with the unarguable um, it gives sense for this kind of deep simplicity of mind 
that Michelle was talking about last night with the monk from Burma who'd been in the uh, the cave for all those years, and like the the simplicity of his mind or the purity of his mind, it, it, it's because there wasn't this added tangle around um, the the changing pleasant unpleasant experiences of life. It just makes things simple. And one last way that we may uh, support uh, the development of equanimity is um, the little questions or inquiries that might incline the mind towards equanimity. So, for example, um, sometimes when I notice I'm struggling, there's reactivity the way things are, I'll just say the sentence, this is the way things are right now. And there's something about that um, sentence that, that sometimes can end my argument with the unarguable or end my argument with reality. Oh, this is the way things are right now. Or sometimes, um, this, is a, this is one that I used a lot many years ago when I had health problems. So I had um, one, of those, one of these kind of vague illnesses for a number of years. And... Um, I would have days that were challenging and days um, that I felt normal. So days that were unpleasant and days that were pleasant because I felt normal. And um, it was the best equanimity teacher. Health problems, wow, they just push you right to the right to the edge on on um, developing equanimity. And so early in this in this. Um, time of challenging health, I really went for the roller coaster rides, right? So on the days that were difficult and, and um, unpleasant, I would, I, would, I would, lots of aversion and kind of belief it was going to last forever and catastrophizing stories about what was going to happen to me and how I was going to become disabled and not able to work and just the, the lots of suffering. And then on the days when I felt normal and fine, um, I would go for that ride too. It'd be like, oh, now I'm fine. I'm never going to be sick again. Everything's great. This is going to last. Everything's going to turn out perfect. You know. So I would just go on this roller coaster ride up and down and up and down. And um, I started to really pay attention <laughs> to and bring the mindfulness practice to it, right? So the place I decided to try to unhook, interestingly, was the days that I felt good. So on the days that I felt good, and the attachment would arise, one of the pleasantness of feeling good, the attachment would arise in the form of, this is going to last forever. That would be the attachment story, right? So I would remind myself, this is going to pass. And it wasn't actually depressing. I know, it, I mean, it sounds depressing when you have chronic health problems and, and you have lots of bad days and then you have a good day. You're like, I earned this. I'm going to enjoy every bit of it. <laughs> so the, so the, the tendency towards attachment is, is, is strong. But, but, but there's so much suffering when it changed again. So when I remind myself this is going to change, it actually helped me to let go of that that energy of contraction around it and, and, and still enjoy it. I still enjoyed the days that felt good, but I started to lessen that 
attachment. And then when I would have days that were um, uh, more unpleasant and challenging, I would remember this is going to pass. And I had this question I would ask myself to, to, to tend towards equanimity. And the question was, is this moment okay? Because so much of the tangle was imagining some future where I was going to um, be so incapacitated. Is this moment okay? And the answer almost always was yes, that this moment is okay. So, so getting simple, right, to, to just this moment. Or do I have a problem right now? That can be an interesting equanimity phrase. And so then, from equanimity, it, it, it's remembering um, that acceptance or equanimity is a starting point, it's not an ending point. So from the place of equanimity, we decide what is a wise response to a situation. Sometimes a wise response is to do nothing. Sometimes a wise response is to go get a cheeseburger. <laughs> Sometimes a wise response is to stand up with fierceness to protect something that's important to you. But what we see is um, that, that the place that that response comes from is an offering in itself when there's more clarity and less reactivity. It's an offering of, you could say, um, compassion or love. Because what we see is when this heart is less obstructed by aversion, less obstructed by grasping, that actually it has a very natural wish to respond in this world. There's a wish to help, to be of service, to alleviate suffering. So that counteracts any image we might have of equanimity as some kind of detachment or some kind of not caring or some kind of cool detachment. That's not the goal. No, the goal is freeing the heart of the, of the cage, of a cage, the, yeah, the prison, our own prison of aversion and grasping. And when that, 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 um, the heart isn't obstructed, of, it's connected. It wants to engage. I was thinking this afternoon of Michelle's cat. I was so struck by the image of her cat sitting in the, after she came out of the garage, sitting in the um, driveway just looking at the sky, right? And I was thinking like, mm, the natural state of our hearts and minds is a certain kind of spaciousness, like the sky. 
And what we're, we're doing here is we're trying to figure out how to get out of the garage. <laughs> this confining space of our own uh, reactivity. So that we can, like, like her cat, we can rest in our freedom. Rio Khan again. If someone asks about the mind of this monk, say that it is no more than the passage of wind in the vast sky. I'm going to end with a quote that I use often enough. It feels um, appropriate because it has a garage in it. (laughs) It's from After the Ecstasy, Then the Laundry with Jack Cornfield. In many ways, the spiritual transformation of the past decades is different than I had imagined. I'm still the same quirky person with much the same style and ways of being. So that on the outside, I'm not that amazingly transformed, enlightened person I first hoped to become. But there's a big transformation inside. Years of working with my feelings and family patterns and temper have softened the way I hold them all. In the struggle to know and deeply accept my life, it has been transformed and my love has grown larger. If my life was like a crowded garage where I kept bumping into the furniture and judging myself, now it's like I've moved into an airplane hangar with the doors left open. I've got the same old stuff there, yet it doesn't limit me like before. I'm the same, yet now I'm free to move about, even to fly. Let's sit for a moment. Mm. 